0: This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rabkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is Shulam Dean, author of the memoir, All Who Go, Do Not Return, which is about his experience growing up in the Hasidic Jewish world and then leaving it for a secular life. Dean is the editor of Unpious, an online journal for voices on the Hasidic fringe. Dean serves as a board member at Footsteps, a New York City-based organization that offers assistance and support to those who have left the ultra-Orthodox Jewish community. His memoir chronicles his life as a member of the Scaverers, one of the most insular sects in the U.S. In its pages, we see Dean questioning his customs and the suitability of his arranged marriage. Ultimately, he is branded a heretic and ostracized from his community. The first thing he explains in the interview is how the Skeveras differ from other types of orthodoxy in the Jewish religion.
1: The Orthodox community is very large and very and and pretty diverse actually. So so the world that I'm writing about is not only orthodox and not only ultra orthodox and not only you know, within the ultra orthodox there are the non Hasidic and the Hasidic who are even more conservative and insular, but sort of like a super subset within all of those. The modern Orthodox world certainly allows for a very modern, Americanized kind of life that is at least somewhat conversant with the outside culture. So, so within Orthodoxy, there are various shades. And so the world that I write about is one that is so, so extreme. It all, almost does not get any more extreme than that. There might be some some groups in Israel that are a little bit more extreme than this, but this is like as extreme as it gets in the United States.
0: You were brought up in a different sect of Hasidim, and when you were in high school, you became attracted to the Skverers. What got you interested in that community, and eventually led you to move to New Square to become a part of it?
1: First, I, I should say that you know, when I grew up, I was close to uh was called the Satmar sect. And the Satmars are pretty extreme. I mean, the Satmars are generally considered the the sort of extreme end even among the Hasidic communities. But there was something about the Satmars that, that was never really attractive to me. My father was not entirely fully officially a member of the Satmar sect, but ideologically he was very close to them, and the community that we belonged to mostly was ideologically aligned with the Satmars. But there was something about them that was very that was very rigid, and lacking a, a, a kind of soulfulness. Now we're talking by Hasidic standards, and by Hasidic standards, all communities are very rigid, and all communities have a degree of soulfulness because Hasidic the Hasidic essence is soulfulness. But the, but the Hasidic essence of soulfulness, as as sometimes sometimes, is eclipsed by the second wave, the second ideological wave that came over the Hasidic movement, that was to keep it separate from the Reform Movement back in uh, uh, mid-19th century Europe. So the the community that I grew up in felt kind of soulless and materialistic, and it was in Brooklyn, in New York City. And then when I discovered the Skvettors, there was something about them that was more simple, more modest. Less concerned with materialism, they were less bourgeois. They're just somewhat more brusque. And in a place like New Square, which is a small village that was built with the intention of its its members, the members of the Skver community, being able to maintain a really concentrated spiritual focus, the residents of of that village, the Skvera Hasidim, are therefore more they're gentle, they're, they were kind, they were very warm, they were very hospitable in comparison. And so as a child, we were going through some family turmoil. My father was ill, um, and then shortly, sometime after I had just gotten to know the square community, my father died, and so my attraction to the square community had a lot to do with the fact that I was just looking for a place to sort of be more strongly rooted in. Um, because when we were in Brooklyn, we were part of a broader Hasidic community, but not so rooted in any real particular one, and I, I was just looking for a place to be more connected to. Um, so it was essentially a search for stronger community and maybe to, to find some some place that would give me guidance, sort of fill the void that was left by my father's death.
0: So, you voluntarily joined this community. You entered it. You lived there in New Square. What made you start to question that, or what made you interested in the outside world?
1: I just was interested in everything that I was told not to be interested in. And generally, that meant modernity and the world in which different cultures coexist. So, the modern world would essentially be the world in which Jews, Christians, Muslims, Hindus all live in one world, that world in which, you know, the world of New York City, the world of secular people, or the world of even religious people who who recognize the value of pluralism and, and recognize the value of coexistence with people of other faiths and other other beliefs and other religions and all that, uh, just everyone outside of, of the Hasidic world and outside of the very religious world. My interests were on many levels. My interests were, I just wanted first just to listen to the radio. And the radio. what does the radio give me? The radio gives me everything that's whatever is on the radio. But radio was forbidden in my community. And so I, I, I wanted to see what it was that they were forbidding.
0: What do you think was the precursor to the radio? What do you think it is inside of you? that made you press the on button on the radio? What was it that led you to that?
1: The square community had me very emotionally fulfilled for a long time. As long as I was studying at the yeshiva and studying at the kolel, um, and the kolel is the extension of the yeshiva once you're married and you get a stipend there, but as long as I was studying and my focus was on my religious practice and my attachment to the Rebbe and my attachment to Hasidic teachings, I was very emotionally fulfilled. I felt uh and I was very spiritually fulfilled. But it's easy to maintain that spiritual focus when you have no material concerns. But once you know i got married and and especially once i had a family to provide for i had to start thinking about the world a little more and so i grew detached from my studies and from that really concentrated spiritual focus and i felt like okay i wasn't being really fulfilled anymore because my mind was in a million places because now i had to provide for my children so my studies weren't as rigorous as they had been, and they weren't as satisfying as they had been, and I would no longer have the energy to maintain that kind of focus because I was running around and trying to find odd jobs in order to just make some money, in order to support my family. And so the, the spiritual focus that had been so important to me sort of receded to the background when I had much more pressing needs. I grew a little bit restless in how to stimulate myself. So I was always busy with trying to support my family, but at the same time, because my spiritual focus receded, I guess I no longer had that discipline to keep the world at bay and to keep my own curiosity at bay. And so suddenly my natural curiosity and my natural restlessness to explore and to experience came out. And so, you know, when I was listening to the radio and when I was uh, soon after I started going to the library, the public library, and was reading just books, whatever I could find, and going through the encyclopedia, I was essentially like a traveler through a whole series of foreign countries and suddenly intoxicated by this idea that I'm just going from one culture to another and just absorbing different experiences. And it was almost sensory in that if you're traveling, you have, you know, it's the sights and smells and sounds and and feels and all that. And so even though all that I was doing was I was listening to the radio or reading books, it it, it completely absorbed me in such a way where I, I was feeling my life so enriched by just letting my curiosity take me wherever it led me. And, and I think that's what it was, essentially. My spiritual focus had receded, and so I didn't have the discipline to keep my natural curiosity and my natural interest in experiencing life at bay.
0: You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Shulam Dean, author of the memoir, All Who Go, Do Not Return. In your memoir, the first moment of doubt you really present to the readers is about your arranged marriage. You really weren't sure about it, but the rabbi convinced you that it was a good match. Was that the beginning of the rest of your doubts? And can you talk a little bit about that moment and that relationship?
1: The essential arc of this book is the story of my marriage, story of getting into a, a marriage that I really didn't want going through that for about 15 years and the, and dealing with the aftermath of dissolving it. The reason, the reason that is the arc is because getting into a marriage that I really did not want to be in, in retrospect, that was the problem. You know, if I hadn't been so unhappily paired, it is possible that all my doubts and all my curiosity, even if they had come, my life would have been satisfying enough and I would have felt in a good enough place to not want to get out of it. The, the life I was living, the marriage that I had gotten into because of the Rebbe's advice, and the Rebbe said, do this, and I had done it even though I really, really, really didn't want it. And to now discover that all of that was based on flawed principles and false premises was really difficult to survive. It, it was it was based on a very strong belief that what the Rebbe says is correct, and everything that that we know about our faith and our lifestyle is the right and proper way. I was ill advised. You know, I had this resentment come to the fore about being in a in a not only in a world and in a lifestyle, but also with being confined within a relationship that I did not want to be in. That was really, really terrible. I did not want to be in this relationship, and and the only reason I was in it was because my faith had been as strong as it was. But if my faith fell apart, that meant that that so much of my current life was based on a mistake.
0: So some of the things you write about that, that help explain this world so much is the rigidity of it, that you're not allowed to go to college, you're not allowed to listen to the radio or watch TV. Two years of study is mandatory for all married men in the village, and if you do it, you get paid for it. So one of the things that was interesting to me was that there's so few resources for, for adults in that community in terms of work, that it's almost like they're creating some dependence because if you study, they pay you, not much, and you don't get any skills or education. So I'm just kind of curious about how people do survive with so little resources in that community.
1: I think the economic system of that community is is fundamentally flawed. People do get by. Many many get by only with a lot of difficulty. The, the most common thing is entrepreneurship. People start businesses. uh, And, you know, you don't need to have a college degree to start a business. You just need an idea and capital. But not not everyone can, you know, be a, a business owner. Not everyone has that kind of skill, that natural ability. And so, the question is, what do the others do? And so, some find jobs within the community as teachers, school bus drivers, you know, some work in in kind of blue-collar areas like electricians and and plumbers. There are some white-collar possibilities. People can get into computer programming. They can get into accounting. They can get into office management, um, especially if they are going to work within the Hasidic community's economic system. If you're going to work for a Hasidic employer... Uh, you can find you can find a job as an accountant for a Hasidic employer, even without a college degree. That's absolutely normal. The problem is financial security is really hard to find when you're so limited in opportunities and there's so much emphasis on having large families. So if you have a family of 8, 9, 10, 12, even 15 kids, I know many people have that many, even more, then... You know, being an accountant at some company is not going to provide for a family of of 12 kids. And so even those who are able to somehow find ways to support themselves do struggle. And this is one of the reasons why the Hasidic community is known to two things. It is known for high poverty and it is known for its heavy reliance on government programs. And its heavy reliance on government programs is almost by design, because they the Hasidic community sets itself up in such a way where it can only sustain itself if it takes into account whatever government programs are out there. And I have a strong critique of this worldview that says we will officially take advantage of whatever the government has to offer, even though... You know, taxpayers are willing to are are willing to have government uh, the government pay for people who are destitute and give them food stamps and Medicaid and Section Eight and you know housing assistance and all that. You know, as a country, we recognize that some people will be uh, will be poor and will have needs and will not be able to sustain themselves, and therefore we say, you know, we're going to be a compassionate society and we're going to provide for them. But we're not ready to subsidize. Uh, people who, for ideological reasons, are going to have large families and they're going to spend many years studying often, um, or they're going to do other jobs that are not going to pay them much, but they're going to do them for ideological reasons, such as uh, being teachers in yeshivas where you get paid very little, and relying officially on the government to help them out. I don't think that we as taxpayers are ready to do that, and I think that That's a major flaw within the Hasidic economic system on a philosophical level. Um, Now, there's another question whether it's even sustainable in the long term. So far, you know, they're they're making do. They're making do in many ways. There are wealthy people within the Hasidic community, and wealthy people contribute to uh, different institutes and organizations that exist to help those who do not have as much. And there are various... Uh, various support organizations for various needs, and there are, you know, free, lo- free uh, uh, zero interest, uh, free loan societies where you can, you know, you can take out a loan for 10 or 20 grand and, you know, towards large, uh, uh, you know, whether if you want to start a business or if you want to buy a home and things like that. Um, so the community, there's a system there that allows people to sort of get by, um, but it's not very well thought out, and there are no economists within the Hasidic world thinking about what, or whether and how they should make systemic changes into how their their communities function. They're very happy to let it keep going as it does until it's going to burst somehow.
0: You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Shulam Dean, author of the memoir, All Who Go, Do Not Return. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer?
1: I chose something that I cannot honestly say why I chose this particular passage, except that I really, really liked it, and I had read it, As I was writing my book, some of the later chapters, I was reading this book, and I felt like there was something here that was particularly moving to me. And the writer is Poe Ballantyne, and the book is a collection of personal essays called 501 Minutes to Christ. And it is within a short story of, and this short story is about uh, Pope Valentine, the author, the narrator, working with a co worker who was a little bit strange and who seemed to have a somewhat tenuous relationship to reality. Though everyone else instinctively wrote Russ off, I continued to give him the benefit of the doubt. I had known a few other head injury cases. In every instance, the before and after were two different people. A self had to be rebuilt from scraps, sometimes from smoke and mist. I wondered, what if you started with the wrong part? What if the very foundation of your existence was a lie? How would you ever know? Russ, I suspected, had not always been a drifting, sleazy, cliché monger. The real Russ was down there somewhere, like a man trapped in a collapsed mine. I thought I could see him struggling to get out while the crazed, bogus Russ prattled heedlessly on. I had been obliterated by fate myself. I was 42, and all I had to show for my years of privation, hard work, and anonymity were more privation, hard work, and anonymity. I wanted to write something true. I had ridden my big white steed of truth into the craven world and been knocked face face first into the mud. After wandering around, sobbing, and rearranging the letters S-U-I-C-I-D-E for a year and a half, I'd landed in that hotel room where I sat with the curtains closed, underlining passages in the Bible, two rejection slips waiting for me in my post office box. The writing dream was dust. Mystery had supplanted truth as my religion. I once read an interview with Kurt Vonnegut in which he talked of his disenchantment with scientific truth because we dropped it on Hiroshima. Vonnegut's metaphor is apt. The truth is no flickering Hawaiian lantern. It is searing white light. It scorches roaches and saints alike. It can flash a liar to cinders and in the same stroke smoke the poor bozo next to him who all the while thought that God was on his side.
0: Do you want to say anything more about that?
1: But this last thing, the, the truth is no flickering Hawaiian lantern. It is searing white light. It scorches roaches and saints alike. That was just, that was just, Amazing, and and I felt that was just so true. You know, the the truth does not necessarily set you free. Sometimes the truth imprisons you. Sometimes the truth uh, the truth scorches you. The scorch the truth burns you and, and flashes you to cinders. And 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 all the while you think you're you're on the right path, and the truth is just leading you into privation and and difficulty. So. Yeah, there was just something something incredible about this passage that I that resonated with me.
0: Can you read something that you wrote? It could be something that you found tricky or difficult to get right at first or something that changed a lot from the first draft.
1: I would read something that is essentially a sex scene um, because this was very, very difficult for me to write. This is the part in my book where I describe how Kitty and I um, we're supposed to consummate our marriage the night after our wedding, except we were complete and total strangers. And so the challenge that I had here was to write a sex scene that was not actually about sex, because, you know, I was writing about a real person. This is something very intimate. And so I wanted to give it a light touch. And certainly, I did not want to be explicit, but but I did feel like this was an important part because you bring together two people who met only once in their lives and didn't particularly like each other. And now, as a matter of sacred duty, they are supposed to sleep with each other. This was an important event. And so I had to write about it. I couldn't keep it out, but I had to write about it in a way that would not be unkind and would not be a violation of Either my own or anyone else's privacy, and so I think I'm going to read this uh, this last bit in chapter four of my book. So I had been I had been taught earlier in that on that day I had been given a lesson what what passes for sex education in New Square. I had been basically taught the mechanics of it, and now it was after the wedding night, and we were supposed to go ahead and do it. And so I wrote. It was a matter of duty the last ritual of a long day. A quilt hung over the window to ensure total darkness. We fumbled our way into bed, moving about each other shyly as we adjusted to this unfamiliar intimacy. Call me if there's any problem, Reb Shraga had said. And as we lay in bed some time later, we found that not all had been made clear. We needed more guidance. We looked over at the clock. the green numbers read, and I hesitated, but made the call anyway. Reb Shraga-Faivish picked up on the first ring as if he'd been waiting and listened carefully to my questions about anatomy and friction and physiological responses of various kinds. He suggested we keep doing what we were doing, that it wasn't so difficult, and we should, given enough time, figure it out. It took several tries that night and a couple of nights after, with several more consultations with Ripschraga Feivish. The act was laborious and clumsy, and entirely devoid of the erotic. But there were moments of tenderness, fleeting but present, of shared frustration and deep sighs and suppressed giggles, even bursts of laughter. In hindsight, it was a bit like assembling a piece of furniture. He turned repeatedly to the instruction manual to verify the shapes of parts, and how they fit together. And it all seems kind of baffling. The the screws and the holes appear to be sized differently from the diagram, and you're not sure which goes into where. And as you place your index finger on your chin and contemplate it further, your partner reaches out and gives something a tug and a twist. And you think, no, that can't be right. And then, oh, look, it snapped into place. And you look at her with a self-satisfied grin as if you actually knew what you were doing. That was very difficult to write, and I was very unsure about it. I wrote this scene a number of different ways. I wrote it first uh, uh, a lot more graphically than, than completely cut it out and realized that I do need something, and I struggled to come up with something that would hit the mark. And even when I did this, I was still very... I, I felt like maybe this works, but I was still very doubtful, and I was so so very relieved when i when i sent this draft to my editor and she just thought it worked great and um, she said she thought it was funny and she laughed out loud and so that was just that just gave me such a feeling of relief that i managed to to write something that i really struggled with
0: where do you write
1: you know if i have a notebook with me i will i will write them at home i will write in coffee shops i will write in I'm drunken nights at 3 a.m., grabbing a pizza after a night of drinking. Uh, I will write first draft anywhere, wherever it comes. Revising, uh, I can almost only do at home, at my desk.
0: And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing?
1: It, it rarely happens that I get away from writing. It is almost always that I need to get back to writing.
0: Who do you show your work to first to get feedback?
1: I have a couple of, of really really close friends who are very good readers whom I trust and I trust them. Uh, it takes me a very long time until I share drafts. Uh, and I try to take a draft the absolute farthest I can take it before I show it to anyone and then once I uh, once I feel like okay I've taken it so far I have one or two really close friends who are very good readers, and I know that they could uh, read this and give me honest feedback without completely eviscerating me in the process, if they would be critical.
0: How have you dealt with rejection?
1: I get bruised. I brush it off. Bruise heels. You move on.
0: And what is your favorite word? Sibilant. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Shulam Dean, author of the memoir, All Who Go, Do Not Return. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing and click like and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.